If you would grab a seat. Well, again, good morning, apostles. We are working our way uh, through the book of Acts. If you've been here over the last several months, um, you know that we're kind of taking this as a, as a way to really consider uh, God's call on us as a church. Because as we look at Acts, it's the story of the church, the early church, and it gives us this picture of what a, a thriving, growing, spirit-filled, Christ-centered church looks like. And that's what we want to be. We want to be a church that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and working uh, for the sake of Christ's glory and for his mission in our city and our world. So we're looking at Acts, and we're, we're pushing through here uh, in this book, and we want to learn. And so we're going to ask God to teach us some things this morning, and we're going to look specifically at Acts 17. So if you want to open up a Bible, there's one in the backs of the seats in front of you, or you can use your Bible, Acts 17, specifically verse 16 and 17. So we're going to focus this morning. As we look uh, at uh, the words that Patrick just read for us, uh, I think it would be helpful to have a little bit of context. So this is uh, Paul entering into uh, the city of Athens. And so I think this is one of the most fascinating accounts actually in Acts uh, for several reasons. And one is uh, just because it takes place in the city of Athens itself. So if you think back maybe to your high school history or your college history, you'll remember some things about Athens. For example, Athens was the home of Socrates and of Aristotle, Plato, these philosophers of renown. That was Athens. And so Athens had this incredible reputation uh, as kind of this cultural and intellectual capital of the world, known for amazing literature, incredible artwork, uh, known for its advocacy for human liberty and democracy. So it was this place that had this incredible reputation, not only for philosophy and, and for art and literature, but also for its beauty. It was known as a beautiful city. You think about the, the things that come to mind like the Acropolis, just the architecture of the Acropolis, the Parthenon, and endless temples that were erected there to these Greek gods. The Agora, uh, the city square, as it were, where you had these incredible debates about the big questions of life, as it were. And you had these incredible porticos painted with these, uh, these incredible art pieces all around. So it's just this environment, right, that, that's just kind of breathtaking. You enter into Athens, and it would be an incredible experience. And that's what Paul is doing. He's entering into the city of a Athens. I was trying to imagine what that might feel like. We, you know, we spent a little time in Boston uh, before we moved to Raleigh and then to Houston. And I, it made me think of our time in Boston because we went to this little church. It was right across from Fenway Park. But within about a mile and a half or so, you could walk to uh, Harvard, MIT, Boston University, Boston College, Berkeley College of Music, uh, is there just incredible music program. And so what, what you would find is you could walk into any coffee shop kind of in that area, and you, you were just as likely to encounter a conversation about kind of the multiverse as you were about music theory or some great work of literature or philosophy or religion. You were just in this environment where all these things were just kind of the norm. And that was Athens. That's the world that we're entering into this morning with Paul. And so as a first-time visitor... Paul would have entered into this world, and I think as, 
as a well-educated man. You know, you might imagine in, in our vernacular, he would have been kind of a, a grad PhD level student coming out of Israel. That's Paul. He's a, a brilliant man, brilliant mind, as we see in the epistles. And he's entering into this as a highly educated man. And I think as he walked around and did some sightseeing, that's the impression you get from uh, chapter 17 here, he, he's checking out the city. He would have been impressed. There was a lot to be impressed by. He would have been impressed and appreciated the sophistication of a city like Athens. Uh, however, what's really interesting is his response that's laid out here in Acts 17. He actually was not impressed. Look what it says in verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, that's uh, his friend Silas and Timothy, he's waiting for them to come and meet up so they can continue their mission. As he's waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The city was full of idols. Paul didn't see the brilliance of the beauty of Athens. He saw its idolatry is what stood out to him. The phrase full of idols in the Greek, uh, it doesn't really fully capture the weight of what Luke is writing here in Acts. Full of idols. It might be better translated as a city smothered in idols or a city swamped in idols. They were everywhere. This city was covered in idols. One ancient Greek philosopher actually joked that there were more idols to gods in Athens than there were people living in the city. Idols were everywhere. This was a part of the culture there. And these idols were beautiful sculptures. Uh, they were made of uh, things like gold and silver, ivory, uh, marble, brass, bronze. They were, they were beautiful sculptures of these Greek gods, you know, like Jupiter and Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, uh, Hermes. All these, these Greek gods, they were scattered all over the city. But what was hailed as beauty and, and beautifully done in Athens... Paul saw as an absolute tragedy. He saw these idols as a perversion of the God-given artistic ability of the Athenians that resulted in this idolatrous oppression of an entire people. And so he looked out over the city and he saw that it was full of idols. It was a city drowning, in other words, in idolatry. I think when we think about idols, um, we tend to think uh, of superstitious people that lived a long time ago and uh, worshipped little statues. You know, I think when we think of idols, we, we tend to think along those lines. But idolatry is alive and well in our day. Idols did not die out with the Enlightenment or with modernity. They continue. They, they've just become more sophisticated. Our idols are more sophisticated. It might be uh, helpful to ask the question, well, what is an idol? Uh, I love how John Stott explained it. He says, an idol is anything that is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy. Tim Keller in his great book, Counterfeit Gods, he says it this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination, he says, more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. To put simply, he says, it's when we allow good things in our life to become ultimate things. When we put God under something else in our life. 
And that means, kind of shockingly, if you think about it, that almost anything in our lives can be an idol. Almost anything can become an idol for us. So our politics, for example, can become an idol if we look to that ultimately more than we look to God to define us or define how we interact with the world. Our politics can become an idol. Our reputation, our wealth, our power can become idols. We can make idols out of our parents, out of our spouses. We can make idols out of our children. We can, if our lives begin to revolve around these relationships more than they revolve around God, it might be because we're experiencing idolatry. I, I just confess to you, I had to spend six-plus hours yesterday at T-Ball with my youngest son. And as I was, like, thinking about this sermon, I, I had to think, man, Lord, what, what's going on here? Uh, you know, whether it's sports or, or academics, you know, an, an entire family's life can begin to revolve around things with their children if you're not careful, right? We know that. We see that. We've experienced that. And so I think it's worth even asking the question, are, are, is something good like our children or their activities, can even that become an idol? I think we know an incredible amount of freedom in our day, and that affords us uh, opportunity. And especially if we combine that with, with wealth and power, really almost anything is possible. But because I can afford to do something, doesn't necessarily mean that I should do it. So I think even freedom itself we can make an idol. We can put before the Lord. And so the list of idols, we could go on and on and on listing out these endless possibilities as idols. It could be sexual identity, food, alcohol, television, exercise, entertainment, even religion. We can make the Bible an idol if we're not careful. We can make our particular commitment to our doctrine of choice an idol. We can actually make our traditions and our preferences in worship an idol. We can make good things, right, into ultimate things, even more important than God in our lives. So there's idols everywhere. And the question, I think, when we look at what Paul says here is, do we see them? Paul looked around the city of Athens and he saw a city full of idols, and as Paul saw them on the streets of Athens, do we see them in our own culture? Do we see them in our own lives? The ongoing challenge for all of us is to identify the idols that seek to control us. To ask what good things am I tempted to make into ultimate things in my life? And so that's what Paul saw, and I think that's what God is inviting us to ask. Do we see the idols in our lives? What's interesting is we go on to discover what Paul felt in light of what he saw. The Apostle Paul not only saw these idols, he responded to them. And if we see what Paul saw, I think we ought to feel what he felt. Verse 16, it says, Paul's spirit was provoked within him. Provoked. Interesting word. His spirit was provoked. It's paroxino is the Greek word. And it's interesting, it was this ancient medical term uh, that usually was associated with seizures, right? So uncontrollable kind of experience in your body. But it also came to mean uh, irritated or roused in anger. In fact, the same term for provoked in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, 
It is used to describe God's response when the Israelites made a golden calf idol. God was provoked to anger, is what we're told in Exodus. And Paul is responding like God to idolatry here. That is Paul's response. He is provoked to anger. He is having this internal spiritual fit, if you will, about what he's encountering around him. And it's not a temper tantrum or a rant. It's this internal thing, this this churning, this righteous angst in his heart for what he sees in the city of Athens. He's indignant. He's infuriated, but he's infuriated for God. You might say, in other words, that Paul is jealous for God. Paul is jealous for God. Exodus 34, 14 says this. Do not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I think the idea of a jealous God, the jealousy of God is a strange idea, I think, to us. The jealousy of God. It might seem at first glance to be kind of this petty emotion beneath God. Why would God ever need to feel jealousy? Why would he ever experience something that... that, kind of is associated with wanting something he can't have. How could that ever be true for God? That's how we process jealousy. We want something that we don't have the right to possess, and so we are jealous of another. But God's jealousy is different. God's jealousy is a jealousy for what is rightly his, you see. So it helps me to think about it this way. Is if you imagine a married person, uh, who um, with their spouse is in this relationship and another person begins to pursue your spouse romantically while you're married, right? So you're married, you're in this committed relationship to one another and yet someone begins to enter in. So someone starts calling Langley on the weekends asking her on a date, <laughs> right? Do you think I'm gonna get jealous? I am gonna get jealous and it's a righteous jealousy, isn't it? Because that person's an intruder, that person has no claim, in other words, on that relationship. And so there's this dynamic of God's jealousy that's a righteous jealousy. God, our creator, God, our redeemer, has a right to be jealous, doesn't he, for our hearts. To claim our, our total allegiance to him. We are, after all, the bride of Christ Jesus now has our total devotion in this relationship with him. And as God's people, we share in God's jealousy. We feel this jealousy for God, not only for ourselves, but in the world. We now possess a deep desire for our God, the lover of our souls, to be the one who receives all glory and all honor, not only in our lives, but in the world. This is what Paul was feeling. He was feeling this intense jealousy. For God. In other words, when God isn't treated as God in our lives or in the world, it ought to deeply disturb us, right? Whenever, whenever God is denied his rightful place, in other words, we should feel a pain, a, a, an ache, a hurt deep within us. And I'll just admit, all too often, I, I am not provoked. I am not provoked in my spirit. I am not jealous for God. We are not jealous for God. And so I think we, we need to pray. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to, to give us this spirit 
that is provoked. That we would be pricked, that we would be cut, that we would be moved deeply, stirred. That, that Jesus Christ would so captivate our hearts, so captivate our hearts that we would be jealous to see him honored and lifted up in the world. That's what we long for. That's what this world needs is to see Jesus. And so we need to pray that the Spirit of God would provoke us as the people of God to be jealous for him. And so as a people who are provoked, what would we do? What would it look like to be a people provoked to be jealous for God like Paul? Well, I think it's helpful to look at what Paul did. Verse 17 So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. It goes on to say that Paul was invited to the Areopagus, which is kind of the de facto city council for Athens. It's where the leadership would gather and they would have these debates and discussions about what was good and right for Athenians. And so he was allowed to enter into this this space and present his case He was allowed to to enter into this place and present a case for Jesus and the resurrection for the one true God, the case for the one true God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, let's just think about what's unfolded here in just two verses. Paul is hanging out in Athens waiting for his friends to arrive so they can go on in their mission somewhere else. And while he's waiting, he gets engaged with this conversation with these philosophers And as he's discussing things with these philosophers, they're intrigued. They mock him, but they're intrigued. And they say, you know what? You should come up and talk with our leadership because they want to hear what you have to say about these gods, Jesus, and resurrection. They misunderstand, and they want clarification. And so he comes, and Paul is now standing in the Areopagus before the leadership of the entire city, the city that is the epicenter, right, of culture and academia in the known world at that time. Now, this is not the main point, but how amazing is God, right? How amazing is God that he put Paul from standing on the street, talking with some people in the marketplace, to standing before the leadership of the city. And I raise this just to point out, you know what it says in 1 Peter 3.15, right? It says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. Always be prepared. Paul was prepared. He didn't plan that day on standing in the Areopagus. And I think just as an encouragement to us, we need to be prepared. We never know what opportunity is going to be presented on any given day. Maybe you're on the golf course. Maybe you're at the gate waiting for your flight. Maybe you're sitting in your office at work. And you never know what kind of opportunity the Lord's going to give you. He gave Paul this incredible opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And so that's what he did. He went before this group and he proclaimed the gospel. And his jealousy for God, his anger against this idolatry, it led him not to a place where he condemned Athens, not to a place where he condemned these people, where he stood before them in the public square, not ranting, not raving, but out of his jealousy for God, he told them about Jesus. His jealousy for God led him This internal churning and anger and frustration led him to a moment of compassion and to a word of love for these people. John Stott says in his commentary on Acts, he says, What is our motivation for evangelism today? 
He said, the commonest answer is the Great Commission. And indeed, obedience to it provides strong incentive. He says then that compassion actually is an even higher incentive than obedience. Namely, love for people who do not know Jesus. But he goes on to say the highest, the highest incentive of all for evangelism is zeal or jealousy for the glory of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus deserves the greatest place of honor. Jesus alone deserves the place of honor in our lives and in the world. He's the most beautiful, the most just, the most loving person that has ever existed. And so our jealousy moves us to a place where we hold up Jesus for others to see. That's the desire of our hearts. That's what Paul did standing before these folks in Athens. And so our jealousy for God leads us not to condemn others, but to tell others about him, to bear witness, to invite people to turn from their idols, their inadequate God substitutes, and give God his rightful place in their lives. And so that's what it means to be provoked, provoked by the Spirit. Paul's jealousy for God provided him the opportunity to reason with people, to stand with these people, to talk with them about Jesus. He did it in the synagogue. He did it in the marketplace. He used the language of the Old Testament. He used the language of Greek philosophy. He gave them arguments and reasons for faith in Jesus. He offered them this comprehensive picture of God, the creator, the sustainer, the ruler, the father and judge of all nature, all history, all humanity. He gave this incredible word to the people of Athens. In other words, he gave this big gospel, right? Huge gospel, covers everything. Because he wanted them to know this big God, the one true God. Not these tiny gods and idols, but the one true living God. And so just in closing, I wanna wanna ask, is it possible that we sometimes are reticent to talk about Jesus with other people, not because we don't understand the Great Commission, the call of Jesus, and not because we don't love the people in our lives, but because we don't feel provoked in our spirit to share the gospel. We don't feel provoked in our spirit, in other words, because we actually turn a blind eye to so many idols. See, Paul spoke boldly, sharing the gospel with the people of Athens because he had walked their streets and he had seen their idols, their life without the one true God, provoked in him love for them, provoked in in him a love for these people, a desire to share, again, like Stott says, the good news of the gospel so that God might be lifted up in the world. So again, I ask, do we see our idols? Do we as a people see our idols, those things in our lives that we've allowed to take the place of God as the sole comfort, as the peace, as the security, as the worth in our life? Do we see our idols? Because if we want to honor God and truly love others, we need the Holy Spirit to help us see the things that we are blind to, to see the idols in our life. Because only then, Can we turn from them and give God the honor and the glory that he is due? Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant Paul. Lord, who looked around and had the eyes to see a city drowning in idolatry. And Lord, we pray that you would give us those eyes to see the idols in our culture, to see the idols in our own lives. Lord, that we might be a people who are provoked to jealousy for our God. That you alone would be lifted up in our lives, that you alone would be our God. And Lord, that through that you would move us to proclaim how great you are. God, how great you are that many, many might come to know you and trust you and give their life to you, that they might lay down their idols. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.